Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Throw Everything podcast. This is a first take thing. I don't know, it'll probably be a test episode. And I just wanted to share a story for you all. It's a good story, and I want to see if it's a good podcasting thing. I know this is the first episode, so you're all probably wondering who I am, and honestly, that doesn't really matter. All that really matters is that I'm a voice behind a microphone, or actually a phone, since I do record these on my phone, and I'm talking to you, the listener. Whatever you're doing right now, whatever you got life stressed out with, or you stressed out with life, or I know COVID times are crazy, relax. Sit down, grab yourself a nice cup of hot cocoa since it is winter, and just take a deep breath and relax, okay? You deserve it. So, with that being said, now that you're relaxed, you can call me Bray, if, in case you want. That is my name. And let's get on with the story, shall we? So, how was your day? You know, that was pretty good. Let me just get this thing real quick. story is a story called The Mission to India. It's written by Dr. George Lombardi, and here it is. It was a Saturday afternoon in September 1989, and I was home alone, backing boxes when the phone rang, and a woman that I didn't know started to interrogate me. Are you Dr. Lombardi? Are you Dr. George Lombardi? Are you an infectious disease specialist? Do you live and work and do research in Africa? Are you considered to be an expert in tropical infections? Would you consider yourself to be an expert in viral hormographic fevers? At this point, I paused, gathered myself, and asked the obvious question. Who are you? She introduced herself and said that she was a representative of a world figure and the noble learn. Someone who was suspected of having a viral hermographic fever, and she was calling to ask if I would consult on the case. Now, I found this highly improbable. I was 32 years old. I had just opened up my office. The phone never rang. I had no patience. In fact, I remember staring at the phone, trying to will it to ring. But she persisted, and she mentioned that she had gotten my name from a colleague. I told her to call Dr. Lombardi. He knows a lot about very weird things. She arranged a conference call, and in ten minutes I was transported through the telephone wires to a small hospital in Calicutta, India, where I found her for the first time that the patient was Mama Teresa. On the line were two Indian doctors, were two main Indian doctors. We chatted and discussed the details of the case for about an hour. And though these details are now hazy to me, what came through the staticky wires was their deep abiding concern for the patient. These guys were worried. I wished them well as I got off the line and I went back to unpack some boxes. She called again an hour later. She said, they were very impressed by what you had to say and they'd like you to go to uh, Calicutta. I'm making the arrangements. I can get you out tomorrow afternoon on the Concord for the first leg. 
I said, this is impossible. Because I just found my passport in one of these boxes. And I told her it expired three months before. She said, that's a minor detail. Meet me in front of your building tomorrow morning, Sunday, at 7 a.m. Well, you can probably say some is some somebody who pretty much does what she's told. So 7 o'clock the next morning, she comes careening down the block in a wood-paneled station wagon with bad shock absorbers. I jump in. The next stop, the passport office at Rockefeller Center, where on a Saturday, Sunday, sorry, Sunday morning, the State Department official came in, let us in, took my picture, and in 15 minutes handed me a brand new passport. The next stop was the Indian Consultate, where again, on a Sunday morning, the entire staff came in full dress uniform to give me an honor guide, honor guard procession, where I walked past as they ushered me in to the consulate general himself who affixed the visa to my passport he leaned in towards me and said we bestow our blessings on you the eyes of the world are upon you now i know who mother Teresa was of course but this was the first moment i realized what she meant not just to the indian people but to the world i get back in my car i'm getting into this we're next she says, we're ahead of schedule. I'm going to drop you off at your home. I'll be back at 11 a.m. I'll meet you downstairs. Sure enough, 11 a.m., tires squealing, she pulls up with one addition. In the back seat of the station wagon are wedged five sisters of charity, five nuns, as they're sitting on a perch. They start handing me letters and envelopes and small packages wrapped in burlap and tied with twine, saying, well, if you see Sister Narita and Sister Raphael, please give them this from me. I'm a courier. This is all before Homeland Security. We barrel off to JFK. When we get there, I ask Sotovis, why are we here? They could have just given you these things. I don't understand why they, they had to come to the airport. And I was told, well, I don't know how to tell you this, but you don't have a confirmed seat on the Concorde. You're flying standby. My eyes widened. Well, the sisters are going to go up there and then a line of ticket passengers and beg until someone gives up their seat. I stood off to the side, just out of earshot, as I watched the scene unfold. The five nuns surrounded this first New York City businessman. He's listening to them. He's looking over to me, and he's looking back at them, and he shakes his head, no, he's sorry. He can't help. They move on to the next one, and now I can hear their voices, which obviously have been raised in about 15 minutes. This biz- 15 seconds this business been. <coughs> This businessman realizes that resistance is futile. And he hands over his ticket. The sisters come toward me and they hand me this ticket and it has an offering. And there's a small triumphal grin on each of their faces. The nun equivalent of a high five. I wag my finger at them. You sisters are little devils. I'm gonna tell Mother Teresa what you did. And they laugh and that breaks the tension. Next stop, Calicutta. After 24 hours of flight, 100 degrees, 100% humidity. I get off the plane and I'm met by my own personal private security detail nuns. They whisk me through customs and deliver me deliver me to the hospital where the doctors are waiting for me. When the doctors intone, he's deteriorating. I go directly to her room. I'm meeting Mother Teresa for the first time. She's clearly very weak and she beckons me towards her as, and I feel as if I'm going to get a blessing. She says the following, 
Thank you for coming. I will never leave Calcutta. Do not ever disagree with my Indian doctors. I need them. They run my hospital and clinics, and I will not have them embarrassed. And with that, she dismisses me with a wave of her hand. Oh. I go and wash my hands, and I come back to an examiner. As I go to pull her gown down to listen to her heart and lungs, the nuns who surround her lift the gown up. I pull the gown down. They pull the gown up. The kabuki dance goes on for several minutes until, from sheer exhaustion, I just banish them from the room. After performing my examination, I still don't know what's wrong with her, so I do what an infectious disease doctor does. I do my cultures and my gram stains and my buffy coat smears and my tantric prep. And we'll agree we'll meet the next morning at 9 a.m. As I leave the hospital, I set upon 5,000 pilgrims who are holding a candlelit prayer vigil. I skate back to the hotel, where I pour myself a stiff drink, order room service for dinner, and turn on a local news hoping it will serve as a distraction. And there I am. The lead story on the evening news. That night, and every night, footage of Dr. Lombardi entering and leaving the hospital with a reporter saying, Dr. Lombardi's come from the United States to attend to Mother Teresa as she inches closer toward death. The drumbeat of the death watch has begun. She deteriorates over the next 48 hours. She's in septic shock. The rude unhinging of the machinery of life as it was described 150 years ago as a point as a description now. And on the third day, two preposterous events collide. The first is the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. Small, tiny, transition dewdrops on the blood culture plate. This is important. This could be a bacterial infection. This is an important clue. The second is one of the Pope's cardiologists flies in from Rome. He's an impressive man, a man straight from central casting. A head of silver hair, a brawny suit, Hermes tie, Gucci loafers. And our first meeting when I tell him the group of doctors excitedly that the cultures are turning positive and that we may have an answer here. My concern is that the pacemaker that was put in several months before could be the cause of infection. He erupts. Out of the question, he bellows, this is a clear case of malarella. Well, if they could diagnose malarella anywhere, it would be on the subcontinent of India. And this wasn't the case. She worsens over the next couple of days, and I'm having dreams where she's actually falling just beyond my outstretched hand. And I change my routine. Rather than fleeing the hospital at the end of the day through the side exit, I go out to the front, and I walk through the pilgrims, and I'm bolstered by their love and their deviation. Um, sorry. <laughs> On the fifth day, I make my most impassioned plea. I stand before the group, and I tell them that this is septic shock. It has a bacterial cause, and it's due to the pacemaker. This pacemaker must be removed. Dr. Brioni, as I've come to call him, stands on the lectern carrying his copy of the America Mail. It's a small book that many doctors carry. He has the Italian version, Meraca Menu, and it is seen right out of Shakespeare. He, as he talks, he's pounding the lectern with his book. If you listen, boom, 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 to this American upstart, boom, I will not be held responsible. Boom! The sounds are ricocheted through the whole somber conference like a gunshot. And in that moment, I looked into the eyes of the country. Elegant Indian doctors. And they lost respect for him. They asked us to wait outside as they considered their options. I sat there with my vinyl knapsack and my socks or sandals. He sat next to me elegantly attired with two equally elegantly attired attaches in the Indian consulte. 
He called us back in and said, we decided to go with Dr. Lombardi. The Pope's doctor silently packed his bag, left the hospital, went directly to the airport, and flew out of the country. I said, let's get that pacemaker out. And they looked at me and said, you want it out? You got to take it out. I said, I've, I've, I've never done that before. They gave me this wonderful nonverbal Bengali head waddle. So I went down to her room and I banished the nuns. And I got a charge nurse and a basic tray and prepared the patient. The pacemaker box came out readily, but the wire, the wire that had been sitting her right ventricle for several months was tethered into place and it would not budge. I twisted and turned and in all kinds of little body English, but it, it wouldn't budge. The thing was stuck. I started to sweat. My eye, my glasses, they fogged over. There had been stories that if you pull hard enough, you can put a hole in the ventricle and she could bleed into her chest and die within a matter of minutes. So in the most surreal moment, I said a prayer to Mother Teresa for Mother Teresa. And the caveator came loose. I took it out, I cultured the tip, and I proved that the pacemaker was the cause of her infection. She got better. Her fever broke. She woke up. A couple of days later, she was sitting in a chair eating. My work was done, but they wouldn't let me leave. I stayed another two weeks, as if it was the only doctor who could start her IVs, who could thread those carthers into those tiny, fragile, elderly woman's veins. It's a skill I'd picked up in the mid-1970s as a medical student at NYU Medical Hospital, where I learned to start IVs in the hardened veins of IV drug addicts. It's a skill I honestly thought I would never, ever need again. When it was my time to leave, I held a press conference and they publicly thanked me. And that's why I'm able to tell this story. I flew back into my life and my two sons. She lived another eight years and I saw her periodically. But the best part of this is, is that I have an ongoing relationship with the sisters. They're a wonderful group of women and they truly do God's work. However, you may want to define that and I take good care of whatever their medical problems are. Several months ago, the mother superior came in. I had to fill out some paperwork and she brought two young novices with her. And she asked Dr. Lombardi, can we go to the back? Can they see the pictures? I have some pictures on the wall that memorize this trip. This trip. And they like to see the faces of the other sisters when they were so young. I said, of course. And we go to the back and they're ooing and eyeing. And one young Namiad squeezes my arm and says, Dr. Lombardi, you present a link to our past. And I say, I'm deeply honored by that. And the other sister says to me, Dr. Lombardi, in the covenant, we think of you as a rock star. Dr. George Lombardi is a lifelong New Yorker and a graduate of City College of New York and the New York University School of Medicine. He's in private practice in New York and his practice consists of saints and sinners. He has two sons, of whom he is enormously proud of, and a fabulous as a girlfriend. He credits his love of stories to his father, who raised his gift for lamentations to an art form.